You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. A couple days ago, I was at a local grocery store, and as I was checking out, I just began talking to the cashier, who was very sweet, very kind. I was just making small talk. I had run over to get some things that we needed for, for dinner. And in the course of checking out, I, I just mentioned something to the cashier that, that I felt like they were probably going to get really busy in the next hour. And she sort of paused and then looked at me and, and responded by, by saying very seriously, the past two days have been traumatic. Uh, I kind of got hung up on the word traumatic. I thought, what could possibly be so traumatic? I mean, what happened in the grocery store that would cause her to use such strong language? And so she began to explain to me that, that they had a delivery truck that, that came and it got stuck out in the snow and it got stuck in the parking lot. So they were unable to unload all of the food. And then the same thing happened um, the next day where their delivery truck got uh, stuck or broke down about a mile away. And so they, again, were left without food. They couldn't stock the shelves. And so the, the trauma, the dilemma that they face is that all of these customers began to show up when the snow began to melt. And when they showed up, there, were, there, were no food. there was no food to buy. And so there was one customer in particular that she was sharing that said to her, again, very seriously, what is my daughter going to eat tomorrow? She loves the organic smoked Gouda cheese. It was like her whole world was, was caving in. It was beginning to disintegrate in front of her eyes. And so then I understood her choice of the word traumatic. And so I, I chuckled, I laughed out loud when she used that word. And then I, I realized that she was, was serious. Um, and so you don't have to live very long to begin to understand that life is full of letdowns. It's full of dilemmas. It's fun of, full of tragedies and surprises and some of those dilemmas um, are, are comical. As we look back on them, they, they don't seem terribly significant now. And some of those dilemmas that we face are real. They're, they're heavy. They're, they're devastating. It's a health diagnosis. It's a, it's a call. It's a text message. It's a knock at the door that, that turns your world upside down. And so today, as we continue on in our study through 1 Corinthians, as we come to the end of our study, through 1 Corinthians, that'll happen next week. We, we come to a chapter that is really answering the question of how do we solve the greatest dilemma that we all share? And of course, the scriptures remind us, they, they teach us that that dilemma that you and I all share that is universal is the dilemma of our own frailty, the, the brevity of life, and one word, our death. And so as we, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, our passage today, we're, we're going to be looking at this theme of the resurrection and how Jesus meets our greatest dilemma and he defeats it. And so it's just a simple way to structure all that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to just organize it in such a way that it's easy to follow, but we're going to talk about the dilemma. We're going to talk about the defeat, the difference, meaning the difference that the resurrection should make in our lives, and then also the decision, just very briefly at the end, the decision that we all have to make as it relates to the truthfulness, the reality of this miracle, of this historical fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we'll talk about the dilemma, the defeat, the difference, but also the decision. You know, we live in a culture that um, does everything it can to, to sort of distract itself from that dilemma, that reality. And so Paul is dealing with some, even within the church, even within his own culture, that, that see life as all that there is. 
that there is no life after death. In fact, in verse 32, he'll say, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. I mean, that's a, a very good, I think, summary and description of the culture that we're living in. I mean, we live in a day and age where where men and women have become very secular, and this life is all that there is. And so it's no wonder that many people, as they walk through life and they face different traumas or tragedies or surprises or letdowns, they become angry, they become jaded, they become cynical, they withdraw, they, they lose hope, they lose joy. I mean, we were up at a basketball tournament not too long ago, and we ordered from Chipotle, which is no surprise to you, one of the greatest restaurants in the world. And we had done that on our, on our app or phone, and I, I went in, and, and I was in there for quite a long time, and I went in, it was, it was taking a long time. It's a miracle to find anybody with um, a work ethic or, or a smile, even at Chipotle. I know it's hard to believe. I don't know if I can say that on camera or not, but uh, no offense to you if you work at Chipotle. I'm sure you're great. But anyways, this particular location was not terribly impressive, and, and it was taking a long time, and everybody just seemed so angry, so disgruntled. And I came back out after getting our food, my wife's like, what took you so long? I'm like, honey, people are just, they, they, they're just unhappy. They just want their burritos. I mean, people are angry. They're upset. And we just see all sorts of examples, comical and not so comical, about how people in our culture today, it doesn't take much for them to become angry, jaded, cynical, and we just sort of speak our mind now more so than we ever have. And so much of this, I think, is tied to this belief that this life is all that there is. If there is no life after death, if, if there is no God, then, then hope does not exist. I mean, there is no real ultimate hope. That's the reality. And as a result, we're, we're seeing some of that um, surface and, and in a day and age where we're, we, you know, we're forced to sort of see what's inside of us, um, we're recognizing and seeing that, that we've lost this belief in a life after death. There is no hope for many people. And as a result, many people have lost their joy. They've lost their happiness. And Paul will be reacting to this by reminding Christians in particular, but also non-Christians, that this life is not all that there is. And so first, this dilemma. And the Bible describes death as unavoidable. It's been rightly called the human predicament. So no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, whether you have lots of friends, no friends, whether you're educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. Death comes to all of us. I mean, that's the dilemma that we all face. There's, there's a great little book by Thomas Akempis, a classic. Uh, of course, he's the author of The Imitation of Christ. He also wrote a book called Meditations on Death. And we're just joking that, that if you want to go to a coffee shop and keep people away from you, just take that, that book. It's a black book, as you would expect. And so in it, he, he talks about just the importance and the wisdom of contemplating the dilemma that we all face our own mortality, our frailty of life. And he says this, he says, death is the one universal reality of our human condition. And though death itself is a certainty, its time and manner of arrival are profoundly uncertain. Um, and so he states that, that very, very well, that there is this one universal dilemma, this human predicament that we all share. The one certainty in life is that we're all going to pass from this life into the life to come. And on the one hand, that is very sobering, but there also is wisdom in contemplating that and living in light of eternity. You know, Psalm 39 verses four through five, we could point to a, a lot of places in scripture that, that remind us of this, but Psalm 39 verses four through five, I think says it well. The psalmist says, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. So you just sort of picture going out on a cold morning, maybe as you came to church today, and you 
walked outside of your house and you exhaled and you just saw your breath appear for a moment and then it quickly disappeared. As quickly as it was before your eyes, it quickly disappeared. The psalmist is saying that's what our life is like. Like It seems like life is so long and that time has no edges and we seem so secure, so healthy, we seem so financially stable. And, and again, with one doctor's visit, one knock on the door, one text, one phone call, our life can be turned upside down. And we come to realize what the scriptures teach, that life is frail, that it's fragile, that it's fleeting, that everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. This is why the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, verse 2 says this, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of fasting or, fe- or feasting. I'm sorry. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. The writer is saying that there's, there's wisdom in going to the house of mourning, that, that we mourn, that we weep, but, but we do so without hope, Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians. But there's great wisdom and benefit to our soul and how we live our life if we're reminded by the reality of our own death, the fragility, the frailty of our life, the brevity of our life. And so we should take this to heart. And Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the passage we're going to look at, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not a good thing. God didn't create it, but it is the result of that first man, that first woman's rejection and rebellion against God. When you read Genesis 1, through three, we're reminded that we were created for life. We were created for friendship with God, for communion, to know God, to love God, and to serve God. And that first sin, that first act of rebellion and rejection by Adam and Eve led to sin or led to death. And and we experience still today the effects of that first sin, that first no that Adam and Eve gave to God. And so we feel that effects. There was that real physical death that God promised but also a very real spiritual death. And that last enemy to be destroyed, Paul said, is death. This is what Paul is going to spend most of his time on in 1 Corinthians 15. And so just one quick observation before we move from the dilemma to the defeat is this. Observation number one, the dilemma of death has been overcome with the defeat of death. And so we think about this dilemma that we all face, but we also are reminded, especially as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, that that dilemma has been met with a decisive blow, a decisive defeat by Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is where Paul will spend most of his time in 1 Corinthians 15. So there's the dilemma that we all face, but Jesus has not left us in our dilemma. He's met it head on with his own death and resurrection. So the defeat that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is that defeat of Jesus by his death and his resurrection. I remember sitting with my, my mom at my dad's graveside ceremony. As many of you know, I've shared this before. My dad passed away suddenly in a car accident in 2010. And nobody prepares you, I know, for the loss of, of a hero. Nobody prepares you for the loss of, of somebody who you grew up thinking is invincible, that is untouchable, that will always be strong. And, and I, I had been with my mom. My sisters were, were in that front row as well, if I remember correctly. But I remember very vividly sitting next to my mom just in the front row at the graveside and my dad's casket was just sort of hovering over the 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 empty grave or the open grave and we we're just moments away from the pastor leading us in that graveside ceremony and then of course the, the lowering of his body into the earth and nobody prepares you for how to handle that or what to say and of course words are always insufficient and so i 
I just leaned over and said to my mom what, what had come to my mind. I just simply said to her, thank God the grave really is empty. And I don't know whether those were the right words. I know that those words don't take away the, the pain or didn't take away the pain that my mom was feeling. But in many ways, my, my words were meant to be a comfort to my mom, but they also were confronting my own belief. Do I really believe that Jesus has defeated the grave? And all of us at different times and in different ways have to, to reckon with what we really believe. Has this dilemma really been defeated and do I believe that? And I just remember leaning over and saying that to my mom. You know, Paul in these opening verses in, in 1 Corinthians 15 will say this. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And it's interesting that he uses the word remind. He's talking to a group of Christians. And he uses that word remind, I think, because we're all prone to forget. We're, we're prone to forget the reality of the resurrection, the significance of it, the, the difference it really makes. And it's easy for us, even as followers of Jesus, to, to believe that intellectually, to, to understand or to state that we believe in the resurrection, but also live in such a way that, that sometimes it's, it's hard to, to really see that making a, a practical difference in, in our everyday life. And so Paul says, I'm writing this to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you which you received and which you have taken your stand. In other words, it, it grounds you and it, it sustains you, it strengthens you and all that life will throw at you. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And again, this is a significant phrase. Paul's saying this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is of first importance. I want to remind you of it so that you continue to stand strong in it but it's a first importance. If this fails, if the resurrection is not true, then, then nothing we do or say matters. Then he goes on that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, Paul's giving a great apologetic. He's saying this great mystery is also a historical reality. Jesus died and rose again to the scriptures, but he also appeared to Peter and to the 12. And if that wasn't enough, he appeared to 500 people and they're still living. And so if you don't believe me, go check it out for yourself. You can easily discredit this just by making a short trip and talking to somebody who is still alive, who witnessed that. And he goes on, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The point here that Paul is making is that this gospel, this good news, of Jesus' death and resurrection is of first importance. Death has been defeated, and it's in that hope that we take our stand and we live and we serve and we give ourselves to other people and to God because we really believe that this life is not all that there is. The dilemma that we all face has been met with a decisive defeat by Jesus' death and resurrection. Death is not our future. And so let me just make two other quick observations before moving on and talking about the difference that it should make. Here's observation two. The worst thing that can happen to us is not dying, but dying apart from Christ. The important thing here is just to remember that, that death is bad. It's terrible. It's the last enemy to be destroyed, but it is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's not the worst thing that can happen to me. The worst thing that can happen is for you and I to die, but to die apart from Christ. And that third observation is death might be inevitable, but if we're in Christ, death is not eternal. It will not have the last word. There really has been a defeat, Paul is saying, that, that really confronts this dilemma that we all 
face. And so the question for us is, does this really make a difference? Does it, does it impact our life? Does it change the way that we love God and love others? Does it change the way we spend our money or the way that we spend our time? Like, does the, the resurrection of Jesus, does it really matter to us? Does it make a, a significant difference in our life? And while we could talk about all sorts of differences that the resurrection makes, I want to highlight four of them for us that come out of 1 Corinthians 15. If you go down to, to verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, um, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I mean, Paul is saying that the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. And without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no promise. We have no hope of, of being raised to new life. And all of our preaching and all of our serving and all of our worshiping it doesn't matter if Christ has not been raised. It is that important. But if Christ has been raised, then it changes everything. There is a, a massive difference it, it does make and should make in our lives. And let me just highlight four of those. First uh, difference that it should make is that the resurrection ensures our forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 stated that. But you also see this in verses 16 through 19 where Paul says, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Paul is saying that, that if Christ has not been raised, then, then we still are left with this guilt before God, that we have no forgiveness, that we're still stuck in our sins. But of course, Christ has been raised. And so it ensures our forgiveness by our faith in Christ. Verse 18, then those also who fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people, most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we are still left with the problem of forgiveness, of being reconciled to the God who made us for friendship and communion with himself. And there's just a couple other things that I think are connected to this that are important for us. One is that, that sin is rendered um, impotent. I mean, sin has lost its power. I mean, when we think about this idea of, of Jesus' death and resurrection ensuring our forgiveness, it's a reminder that sin has lost its power. There might still be the presence of sin in our life. There might still be the presence of sin in your life, but it's lost its power. It's impotent. Um, we sin not because we have to, but because we want to, because we choose to. And yet the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection is that He's changing us. He's forgiven us. And through the power of His Spirit, He gives us the ability to say no to sin and to live a new life, to live a different life. And it also is a reminder that, that recreation is possible. I mean, the resurrection in our forgiveness is the beginning of God making all things new, including you and including me. And so it's this great hope that you can be different today than you were yesterday. I mean, that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, that you and I are a new creation in Christ, that, that there's this hope of who we used to be, um, that that can be different, that there is really a new beginning, a new creation. But the resurrection ensures that our forgiveness has really happened. The second thing, the second difference that the resurrection should make is the resurrection gives us assurance that life is not out of control. I don't know about you, but oftentimes, whether it's in parenting or with health or just maybe what's going on politically or financially, it just seems sometimes like life is out of control. How, how do I keep all of these things together? My son or my daughter that, 
that maybe has walked away from the faith, like that feels so lost, it feels so out of my control, and my heart breaks for him or for her. When I look at what's going on in the world, I can become discouraged and despair. Like, is anything going to change? Is any politician, is any president, is any leader really trustworthy? Are they men and women that really have our best interest in mind? I mean, we could just use all sorts of examples to describe how there's this sense sometimes of things being out of our control. And so Paul reminds us that one of the second differences that the resurrection should, should make in our life is that there's this assurance, this peace, that ought to be true of the, of the believer, that life is not out of control. Now, the way he says it might sound a little bit confusing, but if you skip down to verses 22 and 20, through 26, he, he's going to say a lot in this short um, passage or this short chunk of this chapter, but there are two words I want you to notice that I want to pull out. It's the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, and the word enemies. But this is what he says in verse 22. He says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And here Paul is just, again, saying what he says in Romans 5, that, that, that first Adam said no to God and it led to death. This second Adam, Jesus, says yes to God and brings life. First Adam was disobedient, the second Adam, Jesus, was obedient. And sin and death came through that first Adam, but life and everlasting life, forgiveness of sins came through the second Adam, who is Jesus. We've been made alive through Christ, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. In other words, Jesus goes before us in death. He's like the first fruits of a, of a large crop. It's just the beginning and we'll follow in his wake. And we too will be raised physically, bodily. It's not just a spiritual resurrection, but it is a resurrection of all things, the cosmos included. And you and I will be physically and bodily resurrected along with all of creation, renewed and restored if we belong to him. Then he says in verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. There's those two words. Um, Jesus reigns and he's going to put all things under his feet and someday he'll hand it all over to God the Father and he will be in all and through all. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now there is a lot in that passage. There's way more than what we have time for. But the important thing I want you to pull out of here is that again, the resurrection gives us assurance that life is not out of control. And Paul is here saying that Jesus has been raised to new life physically, bodily, and we too will be raised physically and bodily along with all of the cosmos. There's a great resurrection, a great restoration, a great renewal of all, of all things. But Jesus is currently reigning and ruling and putting all of his enemies under his feet. He's crushing all of our scariest predators. And what are those enemies? Well, the top three would be sin, Satan, and death. The scariest predators in life, sin, Satan, and death, have been defeated and will one day be defeated finally and fully. This is what Paul's saying. And so when life seems out of control, when it seems scary, when it seems hard to understand, the resurrection gives us assurance that life is not really out of control. Jesus really is Lord. He reigns and He rules and nothing comes into our life that is not first passed through His love, His care, His concern, and His wisdom. Now here's the third thing that the resurrection, the third difference that the resurrection should make. The resurrection gives us hope that death has been defeated. We've already said this in a variety of ways. You know, in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, I love 
um, how the writer says this. Uh, Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15, says, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's referring to us, since we have bodies, he too, referring to Jesus, shared in their humanity. In other words, God, through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on human flesh. He wrapped himself in humanity. And so he is the eternal son of God who is divine, who is God, and he takes on flesh. He is true God and true man. And so he shares in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Oh, what a great description, again, of, of so many people that live in our culture, and honestly, so many Christians. I mean, we're held in slavery by our fear of death, and we do all that we can sometimes to not think about our death, to not think about our mortality. We do all that we can to, to sort of distract ourselves or deny the reality of our days here on earth coming to an end. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus, he came and he shared in our flesh, he shared in our suffering, and he defeated sin, Satan, and death. He, he defeated the enemy who has held people and does hold people in slavery to their fear of death. But he sets us free, that there's been this defeat of death and our fear of death. And so we might be sad about our death, but we shouldn't be scared about our death. Jesus really has defeated the grave, and he gives us this great hope that this life is not all that there is. He'll say this at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 15, or 55 through 57. He says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, the resurrection reminds us that our life matters. You know, just this last week, I was talking to Pastor Ty, and he was sharing with me about a, a lunch that he had with a, with a local pastor. And it turns out that this pastor was a high school student years ago when Pastor Ty was in college, and he spoke at this high school retreat, and he gave a talk, and, and this particular pastor, who was a high school student at the time, was, was sharing that, that that was him, that he was at that retreat, and it was one of a handful of experiences that he had where he just sort of felt undone by God. And here Pastor Ty, you know, all these years later, um, had no idea the impact that that talk had on this particular gentleman. He had no idea that, that the labor and the preparation and his time away and at this retreat would have that kind of impact on this guy's life. And this is what Paul says in verse 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know, sometimes we hear stories like that and we get to hear the fruit of our labor. We get to see and hear how a talk we gave or a conversation we had had an incredible impact in somebody's life. But I think more times than not, we, we never hear those stories. We don't see the fruit of our labor, and we're called to just be faithful, to love God and to love others. And we don't oftentimes see that our labor really is not in vain. And it's this great reminder that Paul is saying, your life matters. Like your life has incredible meaning. You were created for friendship with God and you're called to love him and to serve him and to give your life away to others. I mean, that's what our life is about. I mean, all of us draw a paycheck from different places, but we all have the same mission and we're all called to go out and, and to live for Christ and to make him known. There's one name in heaven that gets celebrated. 
There's one name in heaven that gets remembered and honored and worshiped, and it's the name of Jesus. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's what life is ultimately about. It's about pointing others to Jesus, about knowing Him and worshiping Him, but drawing others in to know Him as well. It's about getting God's world back, about seeing His kingdom, that kingdom of light, expand and and defeat the kingdom of darkness. I mean, your life matters. If you're a small group leader here, what you do every week or every other week matters. The way you're investing your life in shepherding people and counseling people, it matters. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you work in kids club, or you're involved in our elementary ministry or junior high or high school, I mean, the time that you give up and the time that you sacrifice, you might not see the fruit right now of your labor, but Paul's reminding us because of the resurrection, because eternity is real, what you do for Jesus, it, it matters. It's not in vain. And so we, the resurrection is this great reminder that our life truly does matter. I love this quote by one author. He says that the point here is that the message of Jesus, well, back up, sorry, says this from the very beginning, Christianity has been the proclamation of joy, of the only possible joy on earth. Without the proclamation of this joy, Christianity is compre- incomprehensible. It's only as joy, um, it is only as joy that the church was victorious in the world. And it lost the world when it lost the joy, when it ceased to be a credible witness to it. It goes on to say, of all accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by Nietzsche, that famous philosopher, when he said that Christianity had no joy. And then here he quotes two passages from Luke. It says, Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. Thus begins the gospel and its end. Quotes Luke 24 here. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we must now recover the meaning of this great joy. His point is that from the beginning to the end, Christianity has always been a religion of joy. And it seems as if he's saying Christianity has lost that joy because in many ways we've lost our belief, our conviction that there is really hope after the grave. And so God sends us out on mission. Our life matters, but we're called to go out with this inexpressible joy that the Holy Spirit gives us because of our conviction that Jesus really has died. He's met our greatest dilemma with this defeat, and it's really making a difference in our life. And so as we close, the decision then is really ours. This is the decision that Jesus will ask um, that woman who loses her brother, Lazarus, he'll say, do you believe this? That's a question that he poses to those two sisters who are grieving the loss of Lazarus. Of course, Jesus will, will raise him from the dead, but, but he will die again. And Jesus then makes a statement about himself in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection of life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks that question, do, do you believe this? makes a statement about who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me and believes in me will live even though they die. We all will experience death, but death has been defeated. It has no hold on us. And what we perceive to be a place of aloneness and separation from all that we love and all, that, uh, all those that love us will not be that at all. It will be the place where we are met by the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And his love, the scriptures say, cannot be severed even by death. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I'll prove it to you by my own life and death and resurrection, which is what he does. But then he asks that question, do you believe this? And of course, the woman responds in verse 27 by saying, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, 
the Son of God who was to come into the world. And she uses that phrase, I believe, which in Greek is in perfect tense. And it really is this settled, fixed belief. I have believed, I do believe, and I will believe. Is that the decision that you've made today? Has it made that kind of difference in your life? Do you believe that Jesus really is the resurrection in the life? Is it making that difference in your life? Or maybe you're watching this today and you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus. And God is graciously giving you yet another opportunity to respond to this good news. This good news that there is a God that loves you and he created you and he made you for friendship and your sin separates you from God and there is no hope apart from Jesus. There's one name under heaven by which we can all be saved and that is the name of Jesus. And he's inviting you today to believe in him, to turn from a life lived apart from him to a life lived with him and he will change you. He will fill you with his love. He will turn you into somebody different than you have been in the past. He'll give you real life. He'll give you meaning. He'll give you purpose. And when you suffer, he'll be right there in the midst of it because he's a God who came and he entered into our suffering for our sake. He's been crucified and resurrected and he offers you resurrection as well, both in this life, but also in the life to come. And so do you believe that Jesus has done that for you? And if so, we'd love to hear about that. If you've never trusted in Jesus and you want to make that decision today, would you let us know? Would you shoot us an email? We'd love to connect with you and talk about how you can take your next steps as a follower of Jesus. Let me pray for us as we close today. Father, we love you. Thank you for the hope that we have that your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There is power in the name of Jesus. There's healing in the name of Jesus. There's resurrection power in the name of Jesus. There's deliverance and healing and restoration in the name of Jesus. And we call on your name today, Jesus, for your help and for your strength and for your guidance and maybe even for salvation today. For those that are watching this, uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that you would strengthen their conviction that you really are who you said you are. And for those that are watching that have never trusted in you, I pray that today would be the day that they say yes to you, that they call out to you, uh, to your name, Jesus, to be saved, that they experience new life, forgiveness, hope, and meaning and purpose like they've never experienced before. And so we love you and we pray all of that in Jesus' good name today. Amen.